Well, good morning and greetings in the Master's name this morning. Grace and peace to each one. So, the message that I want to bring this morning is entitled, The Weight of Our Words. It's a little different look at what, uh, what are words, what do they weigh? I don't know how else to say it. So in 1854, Reverend G.B. Engel belittled one of his students. He was a seven-year-old, and he called him addled, or in modern English, mentally challenged. This outraged the youngster, and he stormed out of the Port Huron, Michigan school. It was the first formal school he had ever attended. His mother brought him back the next day to discuss the situation with Reverend Engel, but she became upset at Reverend Engel's rigid ways. She refused to belittle her son as Reverend Engel had, so she withdrew him from the school which he had attended for only three months and resolved to educate him at home. And although he seems to have briefly attended two more schools, nearly all his childhood learning took place at home. Thus arose the legend that this young man, born February 11, 1847, became America's most prolific inventor. 1,093 patents for such wonders as the microphone, telephone receiver, stock ticker, phonograph, movies, office copiers, and most important of all, the incandescent electric light bulb, despite his lack of schooling. Now, I believe that. Had his mother agreed with the teacher and told her son that he was a failure, Thomas Edison would never have become the man that he was, the inventor that he was. And who knows how long it would have taken for someone else to come up with the incandescent light bulb. And what would we have today had it not been for Thomas Edison? So his mother, Miss Nancy Edison, had an indirect effect on the entire world by her careful use of words. I believe the incandescent light bulb was probably used in every nook and cranny that there's electricity to today. And now we've gone beyond that to LED in a lot of the world. But you see how the weight of her words as she ministered to her seven-year-old son affected the world? What is the weight of our words? So if we could measure the weight of our words, how much would they weigh? I know that seems a bit strange to ask that question. Power is measured by how much weight can be moved over a set distance in a set amount of time. We call that horsepower. There's a ratio formula to figure out horsepower. Mass is measured by either pounds or kilograms, generally, around the world. But by what do we measure the weight of our words? Everything that exists can be measured or weighed. I'd like to think of our words in the same way. Our words can be measured by their power, how many there are versus the effect they have, sort of like an engine. And they can be measured by their weight, how much they pull people down or hold us back by their power. How much do they strengthen us or someone else? 
What effect do they have on people? And one of the major points of this message is I believe that words have an effect in the spiritual world, even in ways that we may not understand. I hope I can prove that. Our words control our lives to the point that they make some things sin for us. You see, it would be sin for me to pursue a romantic relationship with any other lady besides my wife. Because I made vows to my wife. Those words made that made it sin for me to do certain things. My words created a law or boundary that would be sin for me to cross. If I would pursue a even a, an emotional relationship, a romantic relationship with anyone else, we would call that today emotional adultery. It would be sin caused by my words, my vows to her. To further that point, I believe that our words have the power to control or to change, I should say, God's will. Our words have the power to change God's will. And that's scary when you think about that. But to illustrate, there have been many young, I shouldn't say many, there have been Christian young men and women who have gotten caught up in a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. Now God's word is clear that he does not want us to be in an unequal yoke with unbelievers. So, we would deduce from that that it would be against God's will for a, a Christian young man and an ungodly, an unbeliever to get married. But if they do get married, does God's will change? I say yes, it does. It may have not have been God's will for them to be married before those vows were, were created, but after they were married, God's will changes. Those vows changed God's will. It would be against God's will then for them to get divorced. Their promises to each other changed the will of God. There's power in certain words. And that being said, young people, be careful. Oh, be careful. Guard your hearts. There's no place in life that you will be happier than in the center of God's will. Never let yourself get caught up in a relationship, a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. The consequences may last a lifetime. Now I'd like to look at several different kinds of words to bring out how important words are. I'd like to look at vows, first off. Now there's much in Scripture about vows. In the Old Testament, they were a form of worship, promising God that we will do such and so to either gain a favor or to show gratitude for what God has done for us. To illustrate, let's turn to 1 Samuel 1. Let's go to 1 Samuel 1. Most of you probably know this is the story of Hannah. And Samuel's birth, 
I won't read the whole story, but I like to read verses 8 to 17 of 1 Samuel 1. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli, the priest, sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. We see Hannah in great distress. She was in, yeah, really distressed about the situation she was in. She longed for a child, so much so that she promised God, I'll give him back to you. Now ladies, think about that. Your firstborn son. And you would just say, God, if you give me a son, I'll, let you, I'll give him to you for the rest of his life. And basically, it was a Nazarite vow. He never, Samuel never cut his hair. He was a Nazarite. And he never drank uh, wine. There were several, several other things that went with that. She said she would commit him to the Lord. And her distress of spirit moved the heart of God and changed the course of history. Samuel, we know the story. Samuel was born. She left him there with Eli's at the, whatever age she could leave him there. She let, took him to Eli and left him there to be Eli's helper. And we see God moving in his life. He went on to be considered the last of the judges. And that's a little bit debatable, but often people think of him as the last of the judges. He was a prophet, and he became a priest. He worked in Eli's, basically helped Eli took his place. He anointed both Saul and David, and was used of, of God to bring David to repentance. And the list goes on and on. Samuel had a tremendous life. But it goes back to Hannah making a vow and then sticking to it. Vows are serious. Hannah fulfilled her vow, even though I'm sure it was extremely hard to give up her firstborn son. Now, to get a proper perspective of vows, let's turn to Ecclesiastes 5. And I want to read six verses there. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 to 6. 
Excuse me. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? So vows need to be done carefully, not rashly. Verse 6, the very part, last part of verse 6 gives us a warning. It says, Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? If we don't uphold our vows, we can expect physical repercussions. We can deduce from what he says there that if we break our our vows, it makes God upset. And God destroys the work of our hands or or the... Things in our life suffer when we break vows that we have made. So don't make a vow haphazardly. Now we, as I was thinking about this, I thought about two men that we know. They're from another state. And there's many more. But there's two specifically that came to mind. Two different men two different, from two different places. But they both broke their wedding vows, left their wives. These these men were both conservative young men, knew better, were raised in the church. They broke their vows, pursued their own desires. Both are living miserable lives. A little bit like Leland's story this morning. I had to think about that when he gave that story in, in Sunday school. They chose to go against what they had promised to do. Both lives are lives of broken relationships, bitterness, self-pity. Both had loving, godly, had and have loving, godly wives and families they left at home. and Walked away from it. And they're miserable. It is easy to see that God is not happy with them and they are reaping the consequences And what is truly awful is to watch the depths of sin that they are both going to to try to fill the void that was left behind. There's no way that you can fill the void of God in your life if you leave him, if you walk away from him. When we make a vow, it's important. Let's uphold it. As I look around here, I see some older people in this church. Here by yourselves. But you're upholding a vow to your wives, to your maybe your husbands. Living with them, supporting them and helping them. That is so beautiful to us as we watch. Bless you for that. Taking care of those that you have made a vow to. I hope 
that all of the rest of us can, can follow your steps in remaining true to our vows, no matter what it takes. The second kind of words is cursing. Cursing is often thought of, of as foul, angry language, and that is a proper use of the word. Um, Matthew 26, uh, let's go ahead and turn there. Matthew 26, 69 to 75. <clears throat> Matthew 26, verses 69 to 75. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And then when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them, that were there. This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied with an oath. I did not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock, the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's words caused him great grief. He cursed. And now we see a pivotal point in Peter's life. He went out and wept bitterly. He repented on the spot. And we see the change in Peter from here on. Became a, an amazing apostle for God. There's another kind of cursing that we don't know so much about. And I'm very thankful we don't. And probably the, the most well-known story in Scripture is in Numbers 22 to 24. I don't want to, it's going to take too long to try to read the whole thing, so I, I want to go over it a little bit. And it was, it's the story of Balaam and Balak and how... Um, Balak tried to get Balaam to curse the Israelites, to, by his words, have a negative effect on the Israelites. And Balak, king of, Moab, king of the Moabites, was very afraid of the Israelites, and he wanted to curse them. So he hired Balaam to try to curse them. Now, through a series of events, Balaam was unable to curse the Israelites and ended up blessing them instead. Now, this kind of cursing is pretty much the exact opposite of blessing. It involves tapping into spiritual power or powers to bring about some sort of evil on someone else. Now, like I said, we don't face this kind of cursing in our circles much. It's not something we have to fear or dread. But if we would go into almost any third world country in missionary work, we would find that dealing with curses... And the fear of them would be very normal and with good reason. I've heard stories of people actually dying from a curse put on them. We can't imagine living in fear of that. The unbeliever has no defense against a curse like that except by tapping into a greater spiritual power. A greater power of wickedness, if you want to say it that way. 
Now, these, that kind of curses is normally done by a witch doctor or a satanic priest. Someone who has satanic powers. But on the contrary, witch doctors and satanic priests have turned to the Lord when they found their curses didn't work on Christians. When they found that we have a power greater, the missionaries have a power greater than their power. All of a sudden they realized they needed whatever the Christians had. John 4, 1 John 4, 4 in the last part says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now there's a lot I don't understand about that kind of cursing. But I do know that it is evil and normally involves witchcraft, which God hates. So, in, so except in, in rare cases in our church culture, we don't have to think too much about these curses. But I do want to present a thought or a caution. We should be very careful about what we say, especially to those under our authority. The spiritual world around us, both good and evil, recognizes the spiritual authority structure established by God in Scripture. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words I shall be justified, and by thy words I shall be condemned. So I take from that that the spiritual world is paying attention to what we say. Satan wants to condemn us. And he's using anything he can to destroy us or our children or those under us. And we as parents have authority over our children in the spiritual realm. Teachers over students, older over younger, husbands over their wives, and the list goes on. And I don't understand how, but our words have an effect spiritually on those under our authority. And we need to be very careful about what we say about our children or about someone else and their future. We cannot fully understand and know the consequences, maybe of a parent in a rash moment saying, telling their child, you'll never amount to anything. That's been said. Those things have an effect that go on and on. It's not that it can't be broken, but our words have weight, especially to those under our authority. Let's turn to Matthew 10, verses 11 to 15, for a better understanding of the power of our words. Matthew 10, verses 11 to 15. Verse 11, And in, into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who, it, who in it is worthy, and thereby till ye go thence. And when ye come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable, tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. As born-again believers, we have tremendous power in our words. We should be very careful not to say things in haste or anger. They have, may have much more consequences than we know. And I would say, as whatever leadership capacity you have, even to us as church leaders, our words 
as we relate to people, can have an effect on their lives, a negative effect. They can, also, they can have just as much of a positive effect as they can a negative effect. But I guess the warning is against the negative. What we say is very, very important. Now, I'd like to look at blessings. So we've talked about curses and the power that they have. On the opposite side, we do not fully understand blessings. And neither do we tap into the power of blessings like they have through, all through Scripture. I don't think we understand it. Just like curses, we don't understand how it all works. Blesses, blessings are the opposite of curses. And I, ha, I believe have even greater power. Why would God allow Satan to have a tool or to use a tool, a curse, to harm people? If he wouldn't give us as his children a greater tool to help and bless people. So I believe blessings have greater power than curses. If you look at the, the power. So let's turn to Genesis 27. I want to read 27, verses 27 to 40. Genesis 27. This is a in, really interesting passage if you, as you study it. What actually takes place in this passage? But I want to, I want to particularly point out what happens because of the blessing that was given here. Genesis 27, verses 27 to 40. This is um, the story of Jacob and Esau wanting to receive blessings from Isaac. And the deceit that's happening here. And here's Jacob coming to meet, coming to Esau to deceive him to get a blessing. Verse 27, And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment, and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of, the, of a field which the Lord hath blessed Therefore, God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let the people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee and blessed be he that blesseth thee. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from hunting. And he also had made savory meat and brought it unto his father and said unto him, unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac his father said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtility and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy lord, 
And all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. And by thy sword shalt thou live and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. As we think about the lives of Jacob and Esau from that point forward, you can see these blessings worked out step by step in their lives. Just as clearly, it's just amazing. We'll look a little bit at it. God honored those blessings. Jacob was incredibly blessed physically, financially, wealth, prosperity. Even though he received the blessing through deceit, God still honored the words spoken by Isaac. I don't understand how that works. Jacob got that blessing by deceit, but yet those words were honored. He became a very wealthy man, and he did a lot of it by, I mean, as you study his life, how he got his wealth was not very, it was shady, to say the least. But God honored those, that blessing. As you look at Esau's life, you see Isaac's words come to pass. Verses 39 to 40, if you look back again, it says, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven from above. Thy dwelling, that's a little bit different than he gave to Jacob. He also gave him the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven, but it was given to him as prosperity. This was given to Esau as his dwelling. Esau became a nomad. He became a basically a, a warrior that made his living by fighting, the way it, best I can tell. He ended up gathering quite a band of men, rough men, that followed him, and he lived by his sword. But think with me, on, later on in the story, when he and Jacob met, who was the most powerful of the two? Jacob was terrified to meet Esau. He knew Esau, or, that Esau could wipe him out. Esau had gained more power. If you go back and look at this at verse 40, the last part, and it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion, this is Isaac talking to Esau, when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke, Jacob's yoke, from off thy neck. When they met, Esau had the dominion. But you know how he broke that yoke? Through forgiveness. It's a powerful story. Powerful. It's just amazing. He broke that yoke of dominion, Jacob's dominion over him, off, even though he's more powerful, he broke it off through forgiveness. You see the power of that blessing that Isaac put on their lives and how it worked out? I just see that as so powerful that God honored Isaac's blessing. Even though the circumstances surrounding it were not right. 
God honors and pays attention to our words. And especially when we make deliberate statements about or to someone, about their future, the spiritual world is listening. Let's be very careful and let's use that power to further the kingdom of God and to lift people up and to help those under our authority to grow and to become great in God's kingdom. What is the weight of our words? Our words are important. Let's choose our words wisely and use them to bless and honor God.